You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Interventions targeting impaired glucose tolerance in pre-diabetic patients have assumed clinical importance. Can pioglitazone prevent or delay progression to type 2 diabetes in high-risk patients, those with impaired glucose tolerance? Joining us to discuss the results of the ACT NOW study is endocrinologist and professor of medicine at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine, Dr. Robert Henry. Dr. Henry, welcome to ReachMD. It's my pleasure to be here. Pioglitazone obviously is one of the two agents in the class of insulin sensitizers or, ready for this, thiazolidine diones. And uh, what is the historical relevance of the ACT NOW study? Well, we now know and, and can determine very accurately whether or not individuals with what we call prediabetes will go on to develop diabetes within the future. And um, knowing that and understanding what causes type 2 diabetes, which um, is, is, is in large part related to lifestyle, um, uh, lifestyle effects, uh, we can now uh, u- utilize a, a variety of procedures and drugs to prevent the development or at least delay the development of diabetes in those people at very high risk. And... Um, pioglitazone, along with its uh, uh, other, the other thiazolidine dione or glitazone, rosiglitazone, both were involved in uh, treatment trials of people with prediabetes to examine whether the um, the development of diabetes could be reduced. Let's briefly outline what the study design was for the ACT NOW study. The ACT NOW study, what we did is, is we screened a large number of individuals who we felt were likely uh, to have prediabetes. And what we did is took people, they had to have um, a fasting glucose of over 95 milligrams, per, 95 or over milligrams per deciliter, and then they had an oral glucose tolerance test. And from these studies, we identified 602 people with impaired glucose tolerance and prediabetes. And these individuals um, were pretty classic, about 50 years of age, um, overweight, um, on average being about 100 kilograms or 220 pounds in weight, with a, with a mean fasting glucose of about 105 and a hemoglobin A1C of about 5.5. There, these 602 patients, they were recruited over two years and then followed for an additional two years uh, with frequent checks to look for the development of diabetes. And we also, um, we also did a number of other studies as well as looking at the glucose levels and making uh, and, and looking for the diagnosis of diabetes, we also looked at their lipid profiles, inflammatory markers, in markers of, of vascular inflammation, and also did ankle arm blood pressures. At, at five of those eight centers, we went on and did more sophisticated studies of body composition and vascular function, as well as, as assessments, very sort of 
um, sophisticated measures of insulin resistance and insulin secretion. Tell our listeners what are the basic results, which I think are pretty impressive. Yeah, well, of those 602 patients, um, about half were treated with pioglitazone, 45 milligrams, and about half, so about 300 in each arm, uh, were treated either with pioglitazone, 45 milligrams, or with a placebo, a matching placebo. And then we've, again, followed them for uh, somewhat more than two years. And at the end of that period, 45 people developed diabetes who were on placebo, and only 10 who were treated with pioglitazone developed diabetes. So the rates were 6.8% per year for those on placebo versus 1.5% per year on pioglitazone. And this represented about an 80% decrease in the conversion from impaired glucose tolerance or prediabetes to type 2 diabetes. What was equally interesting was that some folks went back to normal glucose tolerance. They didn't, they didn't progress on, in fact. They went, and back, went back from prediabetes to, in fact, normal glucose tolerance. And that happened in 42% of the patients who were on pioglitazone went from prediabetes back to normal glucose tolerance. And in the placebo, it was only 28% that went back to normal glucose tolerance. We also... Um, so really what we did is we reduced the development uh, or the risk of developing diabetes by approximately 80% in those individuals. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I am speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Henry. We are discussing the results of the ACT NOW study. Well, Bob, let's get back to more of the results. Give, me, give us more of the metabolic endpoints, uh, maybe some of the insulin area under the curve, and explain why that particular issue is so important. Yeah, well, in, in both cases, the fasting glucose was significantly better uh, with the pioglitazone, as was the area under the curve, which is um, another measure of glucose tolerance, was um, markedly improved with pioglitazone compared to um, to placebo. So improvements, again, as I said, not only in the fasting glucose, but in the postprandial glucose, and the changes in insulin sensitivity and insulin secretion were improved. Now, Bob, you and I know this big debate, but uh, the people who look at these studies and talk about them at meetings, they argue that you're not preventing diabetes, you're just delaying diabetes. So what, what's your take on that? Um, well, I, I think that those are um, important issues. Um, but to me, uh, preventing diabetes means preventing the expression of the disease. I don't think you're getting rid of the underlying genetic susceptibility but in fact, if you're being treated effectively and the disease doesn't express itself, you're not at the risk of the complications that can occur from early diabetes. So while it truly is a delay, uh, it does lead to the prevention of the complications so long as you're non-diabetic. Yep, I, I happen to agree with you on that because I'm, I'm more on the clinical end. And if you can prevent the blood sugars from going up uh, above into the diabetic range, you will avoid those complications associated with hyperglycemia. Well, 
uh, insulin sensitizers, Pio and Rosie, have been hit hard by uh, a lot of the media regarding their side effects. Uh, and I think we all use them in our clinical practice. They're very important class. Tell us about the adverse events in this study. And I think it's important because we're using this class of agents much earlier in the natural history of type 2 diabetes. Yeah, well, I, I would first of all say that that individuals with prediabetes, if you look at their natural history, it is to gain weight each year, usually about a pound, maybe even up to two pounds a year on average. And in this study, there was an increase in weight gain with pioglitazone. It was um, uh, it was about eight pounds over the two and a half years uh, versus about uh, a pound and a half with uh, placebo. So there was a difference in weight gain, but we know that it's well recognized that pioglitazone does cause weight gain, but it's supposedly it's not um, the metabolically toxic weight gain that occurs uh, in in sort of otherwise. There's a a, a beneficial effect on the the type of weight that is gained. So there was a weight gain with pioglitazone, um, again, about eight pounds versus about a pound and a half. And there was also a slight increase in edema, mainly lower extremity edema. It was found in 22% of the people treated with pioglitazone versus 15% with, um, with placebo. So pio had a slight increase in edema in this population as well. Now getting back to the weight issue, in the DREAM trial where they looked at rosiglitazone in patients with prediabetes, they had very good results as well, similar to the ACT-NOW study. Uh, they, they showed that there was an improvement in the ratio of subcutaneous to intra-abdominal fat. And you mentioned uh, uh, the metabolically worse fat, which is the intra-abdominal. Was that seen in this study as well? Yeah, we, um, we, in order to do that, you really need to do either uh, CAT scanning, um, computerized axial tomography scanning, um, and we did not do that in the group, but we did do DEXA, so it gave us a, a relative um, index. And, it, and again, the, the findings were consistent with um, a, either no change in the visceral fat, but an increase in subcutaneous fat, which again would be similar to what was seen in the DREAM study. Well, let's finish up with uh, probably one of the most important questions. What are the implications for care? Um, You're going to be president of the National American Diabetes Association next year, and are there going to be some specific recommendations for treating patients with IGT? Well, I think that it's important. Those are really important questions, Stephen. And my issue with prediabetes um, is that we now know that if you take that group, there are about 55 to 60 million people in the United States who have prediabetes. But it turns out that about a, only a third of them will go on to develop diabetes, about a third will stay the same, and about a third will go back to normal glucose tolerance. So one of the issues is we don't want to be treating the, the individuals who wouldn't go on to diabetes anyways, um, and we wouldn't want to be, and I'm certainly not with medications, although we might want to still encourage lifestyle in all of them. But what you really want to do, if we're, if we're going to consider um, medical um, uh, pharmacologic therapy, is to be able to predict more accurately which third are going to go on. You know, if I knew, for example, if I had prediabetes and I knew that the chances were more than 90% that I will develop diabetes over the next five years, I'm going to be much more willing to accept pharmacologic therapy then if you tell me, well, you, you may well just stay where you are or go back to normal glucose tolerance. So I think our, our, our challenge before we can advocate 
um, therapies for the treatment of diabetes requires better uh, uh, an enhanced ability to predict who will go on to develop diabetes and who won't. Thanks, Bob. Well, in my practice, you know, I, what I do is I take a, the history and if everybody in their family has type 2, they have all features of metabolic syndrome and pre-diabetes, I'm probably more likely to give them a drug like pioglitazone uh, and and go from there. Uh, also, I would love to be able to predict things, in, including the stocks that I buy, uh, and, and figure out which ones are going to go up. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, endocrinologist and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, Dr. Robert Henry. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. It's my pleasure, and I I hope I've been of some interest. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at ReachMD.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well... GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.